0: Please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll continue on in our study of the book of Hebrews this morning. This is now the second in a very short two-part series that we've entitled Christ Our Hope. We began looking in chapter 11 at Christ Our Faith, now in chapter 12 at Christ Our Hope, and next time we get together in chapter 13, it will be Christ Our Love. But this is the second in just two messages. Last week, we looked at the Father's love expressed to us through Christ, and this week, the Father's glory expressed to us through Christ. We're just coming off of Thanksgiving, that wonderful celebration every year where we gather together with family and friends to specifically set aside time to give thanks to God. And if any people should be thankful, Christians should be thankful Not only because of everything that the Lord has given us, but because we're the only people on the planet who know who to be thankful to. You see, thanksgiving can be a rather idolatrous affair for a lot of people because they gather together to give thanks for everything that they have. And then the more they think about it, the more they realize that they have what they have because of their own industry. And therefore, thanksgiving is really a time to get together and thank themselves for themselves. Christians, on the other hand, give thanks to God because they know that He is the giver of all good things. And if there's one thing in particular that we ought to give thanks to God for, it is the fact that we understand that the reason why we give thanks to Him first and foremost is because of the glorious gift that He has given to us in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is our King. He's coming back, and He will establish the very city of God in which He will invite us to enjoy with Him forever. That's our ultimate destiny, our ultimate hope, the ultimate glory of everything that we look forward to, and it's the reason why He came. Now, this is a particularly helpful text, I think, as we transition from thinking about Thanksgiving in our culture to Christmas and the Incarnation, because we are the only people who really understand why it is that the Lord came in the first place. You see many people know the most famous verse in the Bible. In fact, there are many unbelievers who know John 3:16. But I would wager to say that unbelievers in particular, but even many Christians don 't really understand the context of John 316 they don 't know who said those words, they don't know to whom those words were said, and they don't know the occasion that brought them out. The problem with memorizing individual verses in the Bible is that they are often utilized for your own purpose, and that's often not the purpose that God intended. In fact, quite often, I hear people quoting Bible verses completely and utterly out of context, and uh, gathering to themselves a meaning that God never meant it to mean. The context of John 3.16 is a dialogue between Jesus and a very religious man who knew the Bible very well and yet who missed the entire point. Namely, that, if we were to translate it properly, God loved the world in this way that He sent His only Son, that whoever will put their faith in Him won't perish, but have everlasting life, because He came not to judge the world in His incarnation, but that through Him the world might be saved. Brothers and sisters, we celebrate that at Christmas. We celebrate that at Thanksgiving. And we celebrate that in the passage of Scripture before us today. So please look down, if you will, at Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to pick up right where we left off last week at verse 14. And we're going to carry this all the way through to the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Please listen carefully as I read God's holy, inerrant word. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of those of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given that even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering into the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." There are two expressions of God's glory in this passage and there are two responses to it. Two expressions of God's glory in this passage and two responses. Last week we looked at the Father's love, this week the Father's glory. And his glory is seen in peace and grace, and the response is obedience and gratitude. The expression is peace and grace, and the response is obedience and gratitude. Let's look first at the peace. We see that in verse 14. The author begins by saying, strive, and that's a, it's a word that means to, to aggressively chase something, aggressively chase peace with everyone and for the holiness, or some of your translations might say sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I'm going to say to you at the beginning of this message, as I have more often than usual over the last several weeks, that this sermon is going to be a little different than normal in that it's really going to be much more of a biblical or doctrinal study we really need to zoom out a little bit and get some other inputs from other passages of Scripture, and not just to do a, a word study or to build a systematic theology, but, but a biblical theology. And we want to make sure we understand everything, all of the ingredients together. Because this meal, if it is going to be appreciated, it needs to be seasoned with all the different ingredients so that we get a proper understanding of what's being served. To begin with, it's a little bit easier with the first word, and that is peace. Peace, we know, with the people around us is something that has to be preserved through effort. A peace is seen as a glory of God. It is seen as a manifestation of His power. When brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, it's an extraordinary thing. In fact, when people dwell together in unity who are not inside the church, it is a virtually impossible thing But even within the church, it's difficult sometimes for everyone to be together and to remain unified and for peace to exist, especially when the church is being persecuted or challenged. And that's what's going on, as we know, with the recipients of this letter. But what about that word um, holiness? What does he mean when he says that we have to pursue this holiness without which no one will see the Lord? The word itself for holy there comes from a word that means to sanctify or to consecrate or to purify in a ceremonial way. Uh, It's the word translated holy, and it most often is a verb in the New Testament. Some 28 times it appears as something that you do to something else. You sanctify it, usually through a ceremony. Uh, in, In sort of a trivial and silly example but one that you might have seen most recently is on the south lawn of the white house every year there's a turkey that is pardoned that turkey is quite literally sanctified that turkey is set apart Uh, it is uh, given a special dispensation of grace Uh, It is taken from its intended purpose, which is to fill our stomachs, to some other purpose, which I guess is to live out its long and fruitful life as an independently free turkey. But the reality is it'll never be the same again. It's a once and for all event. It's not going to go back to what it was. And the ceremony has cleansed it, has set it apart, consecrated it. It's the same thing here. But what I want you to understand is that when something has been sanctified, it has been sanctified once for all. It is now pure. It is now set apart. The word in verse 14, though it comes from that same word, is a noun, meaning it's a state of being. And I'm going to deliberately take a little side route this morning. And you see, preachers can do that when they tell you ahead of time they're doing it. If I had just done it, it would have been a rabbit trail. But because I'm telling you ahead of time, It's a preordained little road trip that we're going to take away from Hebrews. But the reason is because I want you to understand this notion of of what it means to be sanctified. And it's not going to take us very long because there are only a few places in the New Testament where the word is used and it tends to be grouped together. And I'm going to ask you to join with me in your Bibles and we're going to go to these passages because I want you to understand exactly what the author is saying here. So let's begin in the book of Romans. Romans. Romans chapter 6, and if you don't have dexterity with the Bible that you're holding, you can jot these down, and I would encourage you this week to look through these verses because I believe you'll find them both edifying, encouraging, and informative. But let's begin in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 15. Paul says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to that one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. To the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. The context here is that we have been set apart from being slaves to sin to being slaves to righteousness. Uh, You have been placed from one kingdom and into another, from one slave ship, as it were, into another, and not uh, from being a slave to being no slave at all, but be from being a slave to sin uh, to being a slave to Christ. You have volition, you have will, but your will when you were an unbeliever was a will that was exercised only to sin, and as a believer now, you have been given by the Holy Spirit the will to obey. He says in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, here's our word, sanctification. Sanctification here is the holiness, the living out what you have been separated to, the living out what you already are. It does not lead to a being separated because there is no way that you can live a life of righteousness and holiness before God if he has not already separated you from slavery to sin. And so the author understands this by going into verse 20 and following. When you were slaves of sin, past tense, you were free in regard to righteousness, meaning you couldn't do it. That was no burden to you. But what fruit were you getting in that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You wouldn't want to go back to that. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification or holiness and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by translating this as sanctification, it might lead some of you to believe that that's an event that happens somehow in the future after you've been saved. But if you were to translate it as holiness, then you see the real pursuit that should characterize the Christian life. And the only way that you can pursue holiness And this, again, is the noun form. It's not a verb. The way that you pursue real holiness and live out real holiness is because you've already been set free from the opposite of holiness, which is sin. So don't understand this as being a sanctification you're trying to achieve by your own good works. If you believe that you can obtain some level of separation by your own good works— then you have failed to realize that God has already separated you for that purpose. You see, you don't live a life of, of holiness before the Lord to become separated. You live a life of holiness before the Lord because you are separated. Because it is more in keeping with your new nature to do what He requires of you than to resist it. Let's move on and see another example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You can just turn over one book in your New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll pick up the dialogue in verse 30 and we'll look at verses 30 and 31. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Corinth. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. Jesus. "...whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." You see, it is the Lord, it is Christ, who God made your wisdom, righteousness, or you could say justification, sanctification, and redemption. It is through what Christ did that you are saved, that you are sanctified, that you are redeemed, that you are, Paul will say in chapter 8, already glorified, just yet to actually see it in its reality. That is why you don't put any boasting in yourself. You're not going to be able to stand before the Lord one day and say, all glory be to God for my justification and most of the glory for my sanctification. All glory be to God for my justification and glory be to God and a little bit to me for my sanctification. Because after all, I worked pretty hard after you saved me. I did a good job cleaning myself up and mimicking the sort of person you expected me to be. That's absurd. All glory is going to go to God for your justification and for your sanctification and for your redemption and for your glorification and for everything because there's no boast whatsoever in anything we've done. Brothers and sisters, that is not to say there isn't something that must be done. So look over at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If there's one thing that has unfortunately surfaced in the most recent debate between law and gospel— It is that there are some who have been so forceful in their presentation of a gospel that requires nothing on the part of the recipient in order for it to be obtained, that it leaves the recipient with the impression that there is therefore no expectation. That there is therefore no standard. And this can lead to what some people call antinomianism. That means no law at all. It is to throw off any expectation that God has. And the tragedy in that position is that it actually is just as damaging to your understanding of the law as if you think you could be saved by the law because the law that was given to us is good. The moral law of God is good. Not one letter is going to be erased. In fact, were it not presented to us and laid out for us, there wouldn't be a standard that Jesus Christ himself could live up to perfectly in order that he might grant to those whom he saved. The law is good. God did not save you to then cut you loose, to just live any way you want, sheltered under the promise that he's going to save you no matter what. Paul, in fact, makes the opposite argument in so much of the book of Romans. But when he addresses these Thessalonian believers, he gets very particular. And he says, were there to be any misunderstanding about what's expected of you, it can be cleared up here in chapter 4. So take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to look at verses 1 through 8. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus... That as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You can see the expectation here. It's not hidden. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Let me just pause there for a moment. Have you ever met somebody who is desperately trying to find the will of God? Well, thankfully, it's right here in the Bible over and over and over again. God's will isn't hidden. It's not some divine scavenger hunt. It's right here. And if you are a Christian, if you have genuinely been converted, then the expectation is that you're going to please him with your life. And this is his will, in particular, your sanctification. This is what your being sanctified looks like. This is what your new position looks like. This is what holiness looks like. If you are genuinely yet imperfectly and still yet to be glorified, but sanctified, you will abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you will know how to control his own body in, and I might note this is the same word, holiness and honor. You see, even the English translators go back and forth with how they translate the word. In fact, three times in this section, it's the same word, sanctification. You could translate this, that it is the will of God, your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality, control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion and lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us to impurity but to holiness. There's our word again. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's the Holy Spirit who's already been given to a believer who has already been sanctified and justified, who then empowers that believer to resist the temptations of the world and the immorality that we are still inclined to do and instead live lives of holiness in order to please God. This in no way is meant to devalue the pursuit of personal holiness or maturity. Far be it from me to ever communicate that somehow, because we recalibrate our understanding of sanctification, that we have thrown out the desire to do what we aim to do when we so often say we're being sanctified. I agree with the intention. I just believe the vocabulary should be clarified. Now, let's give a couple more examples. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Just turn over one more book. Paul isn't finished with this topic, with this church. He goes on to say this in chapter 2 and verse 13. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as his firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Now, if this doesn't help settle the case, I I don't know what can. He is thanking God for these brothers and sisters in Christ. They are beloved by the Lord. God has chosen them. That's the doctrine of election. He has made them first fruits. That is an indication of the others that were to be saved from that church. They are to be saved, which is to be justified. And how is that done? That is done by the process in which he once and for all transfers you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through sanctification that is done by the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth and the truth of the gospel. This ongoing pursuit of holiness should mark out everybody. We see this in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. That's the next passage I'd like you to look at. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. In this often challenging section of the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, interpreters of the Bible have landed on various explanations for what's being said here and I do not have time to go into it in great detail though if you've been at our church for any period of time you've probably heard me teach on this I'll just give you my conclusion I think it's quite clear from the context in verse 15 that she singular speaking of Eve will be saved through childbearing ultimately in the Messiah but then Paul picks up where he left off back in verse 10 there should be a dash In verse 10, after the phrase is proper for women who profess godliness, dash, and then after childbearing, another dash, meaning he picks up his thought again, if they, those godly women, continue as believers in what? In faith and love and holiness, this is our word again, sanctification, with self-control. It is an expectation. Men, women... Anyone, who was a Christian. Now, canonically, in terms of the order of books in your Bible, the next reference is the one in Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 14, we're looking at. So let me give you one more, and then we'll get back on the main trail. But one more. First Peter chapter one and verse two. First Peter, chapter one. Peter, writing to another group of persecuted Hebrew believers, these ones dispersed all throughout Asia Minor, reminds them of this, and it's a beautiful introduction to a letter after he references the fact that they are exiles and they're spread out all over the known world. He says this, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, again, a reference to our election before the foundation of the world, he greets them in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a reference to believers. They are Christians because they were foreknown by God the Father before the foundation of the world. They are and have been once and for all sanctified by the Spirit. And as a result, the expectation is that they will obey Jesus Christ because they have been sanctified, set apart, sprinkled with His blood. And as a result, grace and peace will be multiplied to them and will glorify God as a result. You see, this idea of grace and peace or peace and grace is over and over again revealed to us as we look at this subject here in the book of Hebrews. So so now with all of that, and I do appreciate your patience as we went through that, but I think it's going to be helpful for us in the future. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll pick up in verse 14. And I know what you're thinking. We've just covered one verse. Don't worry. We'll pick up the pace. So strive, as we said, aggressively chase after the peace within the community that is hard to preserve at any time, much less during persecution, and for the holiness, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, meaning if you are not sanctified, then you're not a Christian, and if you're not sanctified, you will not see the Lord, meaning you will not be with him, you will see him, but it will only be in judgment. And therefore, the first of the expressions of his glory is the peace, the peace he brings to those whom he saved. Secondly, is grace. Look at verse 15 through 17. See to it that, or look diligently, that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now this again would sound like there's something you're striving for, but you could miss it. The imagery though is going to be clarified for us in a moment. He says here that no one should fail to obtain it. It's a word that means to be late or to be left out. You know, the Scriptures are filled with these encouragements to come now, to believe now, to repent today. In fact, earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author will say, well, while it is today. You don't put this off. You don't delay. He said there were some for whom the opportunity to come was closed off because they persisted in their disobedience. They, they wouldn't respond to the gospel. That's the idea here, and he says that no root of bitterness from the text we read earlier today in Deuteronomy 29 would spring up inside of you. That root of bitterness that says, I'll be fine. I don't need this law. I don't need these restrictions. I don't need to live a holy life. I don't need to curb my desires and my lusts. I don't need to live in conformity to God's standard. He'll accept me just the way that I am. I don't have to change anything. You see what that results in? It doesn't result in a happy relationship with the Lord. It results in bitterness towards the Lord. It results in bitterness towards Him because He will chasten, because He will judge. In fact, it springs ultimately from, I believe, a demonic influence. He says that what springs up in you, notice the phrase, causes trouble. It only appears here and in Luke chapter 6, the trouble caused by evil spirits that possess people, and by it they become defiled. What does defiling look like? It says in verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. A word that means worldly or profane. Chasing after the things of this world instead. In the case of the original recipients, when this law was given to them again in Deuteronomy 29, it was chasing after the idols of Egypt and of the rest of the pagan world. You realize that's what got the children of Israel wasn't, don't you? It was idolatry. It was sexual immorality. Remember Balaam, he tried to curse them, and when he opened up his mouth, God filled it with blessings. And eventually the only way that he could get the the Jews to be judged was to get them to be judged by God himself by luring them into sin. And the scheme that he worked up with Barak was to simply bring the people of the foreign nations before the men of Israel and parade the women in front of them and the the men would go and they would chase after them and they would commit sexual sin with them and God would be obligated to judge. And that was the only thing that Balaam and Balak could do in order to bring judgment upon the people. Well, it's a well-tried, well-worn tactic and it continues to work to this day. It worked for the Jews and it works for the Gentiles and it works for the church. And there is a long and and sordid list of people who have abandoned the holy expectations of God for the pursuit of sexual immorality and for the pursuit of that which is worldly. And just because it's uh, worldly and unholy doesn't mean it's inherently sexual. It just means that you've chosen the, the world and the stuff of the world over what God has for you. And here's the example he says, like Esau, Genesis 25 The story of Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You all know the story, right? Esau was out hunting, and he was starving, and Jacob found an opportunity to take something away from Esau, and he said, I'll give you some food if you give me your birthright. What's the birthright? The birthright was what was given to you as the firstborn son. We're going to see this in a moment, why it's so important, but the firstborn son was not only the most important son, but the most important child. And Esau was willing to sell that for a meal. The irony here is the author is saying, you weren't going to die, Esau. You just thought you were going to die. And Esau is no different than your sons. If you've raised sons, I know I was one. I am one. My mother would attest to this. Especially in the teenage years, we would suggest to you at certain times in the day if we are not fed instantaneously, we are going to die. The sense of this urgency, we are so hungry. And if you stretch that out over all the temptations that people face in this world, they say to themselves, I must have this thing or I will die. And when they do that and they sin, they pattern themselves after Esau. And the author is saying that what Esau did was irreversible. Verse 17, for you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears let me say something very clearly to you this morning anyone who comes to Christ in faith will be forgiven and welcomed anybody who comes to Christ will never be cast out this in no way supports a heretical doctrine That you will be rejected by God at a certain point because you have sinned too much or that you will be able to separate yourself from his salvation or lose your salvation. That is not taught in Scripture. So what is being taught here? What's being taught here is that on a very practical level, Esau regretted his decision. And not only was he incapable of reversing the selling of the birthright, but he was even incapable of reversing the father's blessing that was given to Jacob out of deception. The person doing the repenting here, the person changing their mind, and that's what repentance means, in this context, isn't Esau. The repentance Esau is seeking is the changing of the mind of his father. Isaac could have changed his mind. Isaac could have said, I was deceived by Jacob. Come here, Esau. I'm going to give you your blessing. But Isaac realized that this was all in God's plan. And no one would let Esau get his birthright back, and no one would let Esau get his blessing back. And Esau pursued these things with vehement tears and begging, and there was no open door for him to get what he wanted. So it's not a reference to coming to the Lord in repentance and being denied. It's a specific illustration that the author gives in this sermon, I believe, which is probably a better way of understanding it than a letter, To drive home the point that there are times where your choice of sexual immorality or worldliness has irreversible consequences. Brothers and sisters, be warned God is not mocked. His peace is demonstrated in His glory, His grace demonstrated in His glory. And now the illustration of this grace comes to us in sort of the climax of the sermon when the author gives an illustration about the contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so he goes to something that the people would have understood very well, and that is, look at verse 18, for you have not come, meaning you have not approached God, that's what the word come means, this word in all of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4:16 and 7.25, and 10.1, and 10.22, and eleven sixteen and 12.18, and 12.22. Every time this word is used in the book of Hebrews, it is meaning that you're approaching God. And he says, You haven't approached God, you have not approached God in this way, as somebody who cannot be touched or as a blazing fire, or darkness which means obscurity, or gloom which means blackness, or a tempest which means a storm or a whirlwind, or a sound of a trumpet or a voice or words that would cause you to beg to be excused, because you don't want to hear any more of the messages. And and, and by the way, the word words there is like the words I'm speaking to you, words coming out of your mouth, words being spoken, so that you won't hear any more of the messages. That's the word logos, any more of God's Messages that were spoken to you. He says, picture this. There was a time when people wouldn't come to God because coming to God was terrifying. Because He was shrouded in darkness and lightning and whirlwinds and storms and fire and death. And the greatness of His glory and His holiness would cause you to not want to be near Him. In fact, verse 20 says that they couldn't even literally carry it or endure it. Because the order was given, if even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself said, I tremble in fear. This comes from Exodus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy 9. The context, again, very very clear to the original hearers, maybe not so much to us. And the reality is he is describing a mountain, and that is Mount Sinai. And when the people came to Mount Sinai, it was the power and glory and fear of God that was distributed there because it was a mountain of law. It was a mountain where the law was given, where the law was upheld, where those who disobeyed the law were stoned. And what the author is saying is, praise be to God that we don't approach him the way that the people approached Mount Sinai. It is not a place of storm and fear and judgment with a human mediator like Moses who is no better than us. It's not a place where grace is hidden behind a cloud. In fact, the only grace that was shown on Mount Sinai was the grace that God showed in at least warning the people ahead of time not to approach him lest they die. You see, there is a grace that is shown by God that warns you about himself. The kindest thing that God could say to the people was, don't get too close. But now there's a contrast with another mountain. A mountain that is not approached based in the way that you think you should come to him. Not a mountain that is approached with a hopeless endeavor on the part of man. But a mountain that is approached because you are invited by the grace of God. Look at verse 22. But, strong contrast in the original, you have come. This is for you, believer. You're at a different mountain. You're not at Mount Sinai. You're at Mount Zion. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, which is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the glorious place in Jerusalem, set up on the hill, double protected not only by elevation, but also by the wall, the place where God himself and his glory will dwell, looking ahead to this glorious new Jerusalem that will be built when he returns. And he says that you have come not only to a new heavenly Jerusalem, awaiting its descent onto the new heavens and the new earth, but also, notice it, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. When you come to God, it is to a celebration, to a party. You are joining celebrating angels. Angels we have heard on high. Angels singing from realms of glory. Don't you want to go to the realms of glory? is it wonderful to consider the fact that you are not being called up to some mountain of law and judgment, but you are being called up to the very realms of glory where there is celebrating going on, where there are angels that are singing, where it is the greatest party that you have ever experienced. And furthermore, you are coming to the assembly. It's a word for church. You're coming to the church, the Israel of God, and to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Oh, this is wonderful. And You are gathered together with all the other firstborns enrolled in heaven. Do you realize that as a Christian, you're a firstborn? Now, some of you are actually firstborn children in your family. In fact, I could say some of us are firstborn children. And those of us who are firstborn children understand that we occupy a position of privilege, don't we? I mean, we we are we are the first, we are the oldest. Uh, we are we are really the crown of our parents' accomplishments. No, just joking. But in um, in the Hebrew context, it really wasn't a joke. You really were. In fact, if you were the firstborn, especially the, the firstborn son, you were the most important one. Remember the story of Esau. I mean, you were the one who received a double portion of all the family wealth. All the other children had to share what was left. Why is that? Is that because firstborn children are better? No. But in that culture, the way that families transferred their wealth, the way that intergenerational wealth was accrued was by not distributing it every generation. You don't build fabulous earthly wealth by dividing it up multiple times every time a generation passes away. You build it up by preserving as much of it as you can. And so the firstborn son was one who received half of what the family had obtained during the life of the parents. Now, the firstborn was a position of privilege, and notice what the text says. If you're a Christian, you are invited to Mount Zion, where you will celebrate as one of the firstborn. You're all firstborns. If you are a man, you are a firstborn son. If you are a woman, you are a firstborn son. Not a son, because it's better to be a son than a daughter, or better to be a man than a woman, but better to be a firstborn son than a man or a woman. It's to hold the ultimate position of privilege and wealth and prosperity. You're the most important, and you gather together with all the other most important because we are joining the most, most important, which is the firstborn, the only begotten Son of God. You see, we are joint heirs with Him, He calls us. We are His brothers. Now as one theologian said, "It might be difficult for some of you women to accept the fact that in glory you are described as brothers, But you must remember that you men have to remember that in glory you're described as a bride." Not only this, but we are gathered together with all of our firstborn brothers enrolled in heaven and to God, who is the judge of all, and thankfully, His judgments are not falling upon us the way they fell at Mount, at the Mount Sinai judgment, but they're falling upon his son so that they can spill over upon us as having already been paid. And not only this, but to the spirits of the righteous that have already made per- been made perfect, all of us who have already been set apart, already sanctified, already justified, already in the eyes of God glorified, already be made perfect because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ, we join them as well. And we come together with Jesus, who is the mediator of that new covenant, the one who established it, the one who sealed it, the one who delivered it, the one who preached it, the one who mediates it. You see, we gather together under His inexhaustible power to pour out His grace upon His own because His blood is perfect. It is the blood of the atonement that sprinkles over everything, sets it apart, sanctifies it, purifies it, redeems it. You see, He says here that it's a sprinkled blood that is testifying to something better than the blood of Abel. Remember from Hebrews 11, chapter 4, Abel's blood was calling out for vengeance. The blood of Christ says vengeance has already been satisfied. Glory of God put on display through peace and through grace, leading to our response. Number one, obedience. What does it mean to come to this better mountain and city and celebration and church and judgment and family and covenant and atonement? What is then expected of those of us who have received all of this? Very simply, verses 25 through 27, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. (laughs) It's the human author. It's the one preaching this sermon. He says, don't you refuse me. Don't ignore what I'm saying to you. For if they, the Jews, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that was Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. You see, if judgment fell because you ignored Moses, imagine what will happen if you ignore God. At that time, his voice shook the earth. (laughs) Everything was shaken. The mountain was shaken. The people were shaken. There's a lot of Examples in the Bible where when God speaks and God arrives, the earth is shaken. In fact, earthquakes accompany His arrival. A few things are more disconcerting than an earthquake, than the shaking of the ground around you. And He says here that this great shaking of the earth happens when He speaks and when He promises yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase comes from Haggai chapter 2. We don't have time to read all of that. Haggai chapter 2. I encourage you to look into that later on. It's a promise made to those who had just seen the temple rebuilt. And to say in all its glory would be an understatement because there was really nothing glorious about the temple that was rebuilt after the people came back into the land from exile. But through the prophet Haggai, God says to the people, there will come a day when the glory of the temple is reestablished, The glory of his people established together under his rule, under his reign in heaven, his reign on earth, depending on how you interpret that. The reality being that whatever was seen there in miniature, whatever was seen in black and white, will be displayed one day in glorious, resplendent, Shimmering greatness. But not before the world is shaken again. Verse 27, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that, and here's the purpose of the clause, the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Why are you called to obedience? Why are you called to not refuse what you're being taught? Because there will come a day when this world is shaken again. And everybody that has put their trust in the things of the world will be shaken away with them. But those who have anchored their hearts and minds to Christ will not be shaken. It's a common theme in the Psalms and in the songs that we sing. We will not be shaken. Why? Because we are not anchored to what goes on in this world, but we are anchored to Christ. The second response is gratitude. And this is how we close the chapter in verses 28 and 29. Therefore, in summary, summary of the argument, let us be grateful. Uh, Literally, we have grace. You could translate that. Therefore, we have grace for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. If there is anything for us to be thankful for, it is that God has made us part of a kingdom that will never be shaken and never fall It will never be replaced by another. And thus, let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Are we so enthralled by what happens on Mount Zion that we lose our sense of reverence and awe for Christ? No, exactly the opposite. Because of the mercy and grace poured out for us, we come to Him with all the more reverence and all the more awe for what He endured for us so that we could receive what was entitled for him. You see, the love of God comforts us in Christ because otherwise the glory of God would consume us. Here we are to celebrate what Christ has done. And so it says, let us offer up to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because God is a consuming fire. He hasn't changed. Don't be deceived. Don't think, well, the God of the Old Testament was one way and the God of the New Testament is a different way. No, there's only one God. He hasn't changed. But what you see in the Old Testament is the standard by which you would try to attain on your own through the law and the consequences. And what you see in the New Covenant, the New Testament, is the son that was sent to fulfill it perfectly and then still endure all the punishment that was due to us for failing in order that we could receive the blessings that came to him for succeeding. He hasn't changed, but he's fulfilled the purpose of the law from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. His peace, his grace, our obedience, and our gratitude. You cannot worship at Mount Sinai. In fact, most of the people who are plagued with doubt about their salvation are those who are trying to worship at Mount Sinai. They're trying to get there on their own, whether it's through duty or through achievement or through living life their way. They're trying to bring an offering to God that God has not asked for because it's already been brought in Christ. But the one who can live with gratitude and deep assurance is the one who comes to Mount Zion seeing all of it fulfilled in Christ. Acceptable worship is found there, filled with appropriate reverence and awe and with a deep sense of gratitude. The reason we rejoice and worship is because God, the consuming fire, poured out that judgment on his only son so that he could make us firstborn sons in his eternal kingdom. As the old hymn says, the sands of time are sinking The dawn of heaven breaks. The summer morn I've sighed for. The fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark hath been the midnight. But day spring is at hand. And glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for this amazing truth. And for allowing the weight of it to be pressed upon us even today. Father, we do not for a moment believe that we deserve the many blessings that you have given us. And so it is only with gratitude that we come to you asking that you might empower us by the Holy Spirit to live lives of obedience. So that we can demonstrate the sanctification that you have already exercised upon us and grow day by day in maturity from faith to faith. With greater degrees of holiness. Not to earn your favor. But to demonstrate your power in us. To you be all the glory. And all God's people said.